Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process. We work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive wholeness and do justice to the rich complexity of the world. We are intent on overcoming the limitations of a mechanistic view of life and, instead, learning from life itself to think in more living ways. We invite you to listen in and join us as we meet both natural phenomena and the nature of human inquiry. In this episode, we share with you a rare public talk given by our senior researcher and writer, Steve Talbot, at the Institute in November 2021, titled, Gestures of a Life. Steve's presentation weaves together a series of encounters from his own biography with intimations of their meaning for science. And now, on to Steve's presentation. I want to begin by uh, relating three incidents from my past. And these should land us square in the middle of some very profound questions about the character of science and about our relationship to the world around us. So it must have been uh, within a year or two of when Phyllis and I moved to this community in 19, last few days of 1993, that I saw a little notice about a talk being given down at the farm store on speech formation. Curious topic for me. I didn't come out of this kind of a community when we moved here. I was moved to go, sat around in a very intimate little circle with Patricia Smith, who lived here at the time and had studied speech formation in Dornock. I assume, at the Gertianum. And I don't remember one thing she said, but I do remember that she recited some poems and other texts, including that remarkable poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, The World is Charged with the Grandeur of God. And I heard something in her recitation that I did not understand that was extremely attractive. And I wondered, you know, what is this? So I asked her if she would uh, give me some personal instruction. I could learn a little bit about this. So for, I don't know, a couple months, a few months, she came to her house once a week and sort of tormented me with my inabilities to follow uh, what she was doing or really get it. I memorized that poem, The World is Charged with the Grandeur of God. If you want to hear the whole poem, it's short. I can recite it afterwards if you ask. Uh, But uh, I finally realized I could say that line or any line or any word in that poem a thousand times over. And I would never hear anything but a very disconcerting deadness in my voice. Uh, Certainly nothing compared to what I heard in her voice. Once, just on an impulse, 
I grabbed a little children's book of verse uh, while she was at our place and said, here, read this poem. And she read a little poem called September by Helen Hunt Jackson. It began with, the goldenrod is yellow, the corn is turning brown, the trees in apple orchards with fruit are bending down. Now, this little child's poem, I could have listened to her recite that a hundred times straight. I was just stunned that I was hearing such richness that I didn't understand in this, these simple little words. So I wrote about that a little bit afterwards. I'm going to sprinkle throughout here some of my personal writings that relate to things I'm talking about or that just say things much better than I could say off the top of my cuff when it comes to a critical point. But I wrote, as someone who had come to think about sound in a much too mechanical way, I did not find it easy to accept that I was unable to imitate the simplest sound in any of its profundity. Just shape your damn vocal cords and air tract in the right way and you'll get the quality of sound you want. Well, perhaps. But how to do it? I had to realize that to sculpt a fully expressive word would be no less an achievement of imagination, beauty, and interior meaning than Rodin's sculpting of marble or Mozart's crafting of a musical phrase and I saw no signs of my getting very far. Now go back to my freshman, sophomore year in college. Every male student had to take military courses at the school, part of the ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training course, core, I guess. I found myself, along with maybe 200, 250 other males, arranged around a large gymnasium in a great circle with somebody in the middle, a military instructor, calling out instructions. We had our rifles. And there's a certain ceremonial rifle drill you go through. You know, you're standing like this, and I think what's called order arms. I don't remember any of this stuff. And the drill sergeant calls out, Right shoulder, arms. And you go, I think, something like this. <laughs> and the simplest one, you know, present arms. Uh, the bayonet end should have been up. So I guess I started with the bayonet stuck in the ground. This wouldn't have earned me many points with a drill instructor, for sure. So we're around this circle, and the drill instructor, or the military instructor, is there in the middle, calling out these commands as fast as he can. And around him are a group of assistants looking at all of us. And as we did these exercises, they'd point, you know, you out, you, 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 get out of here. You made a mistake. You know, any slight mis-move, and you were being removed. Now... It finally came down to two people still standing. I don't remember one of them. 
Uh, but I remember the other one very well. It was me. Uh, and he kept calling out instructions, and we just kept doing them. And he was getting a little impatient. And at some point, he was he's standing over here, and he's calling his instructions out. He's looking at me a little peculiarly, and he calls out another instruction, and I carry it out. Then he lets out a little laugh and says, get out of here, to me. I just walked off, feeling a faint whiff of some uncomprehended injustice going on. But I never thought about it again, as far as I know, for several decades. If, if I'd have known that the winner was going to have to appear in a military parade in some role, I would have made sure I made a mistake with the very first command. Uh, you know, I supported a war in Vietnam. I supported the military. But I didn't figure I'd gone to college in order to be, to play soldier. Uh, so I kind of calculated what it would take to just barely pass. And I'm, I'm proud to say I nailed it. I got a D in the course. <laughs> now, two decades later, I'm in a big gymnasium again, and I'm in the stands this time, and the floor is crawling with young people who are it's the regionals or Massachusetts state finals, a competition in, for young people in the various martial arts. There's commotion on the floor to begin with, people wandering around, there's a thousand kids there and they're all their instructors and maybe the judges, whatever. And there was this little kid right in front of where I was sitting he must have been the smallest kid in the whole place and youngest. And I, I watched him. He was going through his routine. It must have been Tai Chi or something like that. And I don't know, I don't have a video to show you, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing in this little kid. Every movement was a work of art absolutely beautiful and perfect and flowed into the next one seamlessly. The whole picture was, you had to just keep looking. And I wasn't just watching him, though. I was watching another man, was presumably a, a martial arts instructor, who had, was passing by and saw this kid. And he stopped, and I could see the wonder and admiration written all over his face like he couldn't take his eyes off this little boy. It was, you know, this, this must have been the Mozart of Tai Chi. Uh, I don't know where that skill came from, uh, but there it was, and it's a question. One thing I realized later, much later, none of this occurred to me back then when I was about as unconscious as anyone could be. But my gestures with the rifle drill, after all, it's a ceremonial thing. You're supposed to be a little crisp and artistic and good with it. 
And my gestures were hopelessly formless. That instructor really had no choice. He did the right thing. He had to get me out of there before I embarrassed the whole U.S. Army. <laughs> it happens, and I this might be related, it is related, but from the youngest age, I was as wholly alienated from my own interior that from where I might have expressed anything coherently, more alienated than you could possibly understand. But this is not a personal psychological case study. That's not important to the points I wanted to make, even if some people might consider that I've always been a, a real case. But <laughs> it's not about that. So what was going on with this Tai Chi kid and the speech formation person? You know, somehow, the, the gestures, vocal or otherwise, were being inhabited by this person, ensouled. There was expressive and compelling interior quality that was being projected outward into the physical uh, performance. Now, there's a very real curiosity here because a physical performance is a physical performance. The laws of physics have nothing to do, and no one will quarrel with this, with gracefulness, beauty, meaning, or expressiveness. But whatever was inside that little boy and inside that speech instructor was being projected as a kind of qualitative interior content of these actions. So that is a puzzle, and I'm going to read something here. It kind of stands for the main theme of this talk. How are we to think of these interior qualities so clearly observable in objective physical phenomena. They seem hidden to, to the physical sciences while yet lying in plain sight. So our question is this. We easily think of ourselves as having an interior that is an inner psychic and voluntary space, a space of perception and thought, a space of consciousness. It's the realm from which we give outward expression to our inner impulses. But does outward nature have an interior in its own right? If we can recognize in some perfectly material phenomena the interior expressiveness of humans, as in Tai Chi gestures or sound waves from the reading of a poem, well, then, physical materials must be capable of expressing those qualities. This seems a rather decisive fact, and we almost have to ask, do these physical materials carry inner expressive qualities not only invested in them by our human gesturing, but also stemming from their own creative source? Do we not discover different kinds of expression in a gurgling, gently splashing stream or a raging torrent 
or great storm-driven waves crashing on the shore? What about thunder and lightning, the flowering desert floor after a rare rainfall, the elaborate courtship displays of birds of paradise, transcendent mountain heights, serene valleys, sunsets and sunrises, rainbows, earthquakes, the crescent moon we just recently saw in conjunction with Venus. So those were some early experiences and much later reflection on the kind of problem they presented. So eventually, many years later, I would join the Nature Institute, 1998. And here I became more and more conscious of this problem. After all, what does Craig do? He writes these whole organism studies. The aim is to capture this interior way of being that finds expression through the entire reality, material and otherwise, of the organism. Our whole purpose here was to explore the potentials of a qualitative science. And here I was wondering, what is a quality? And how do you express a quality? What does it mean? And what's that got to do with the physical sciences with which I was raised and was comfortable my whole life, almost? So I wrote a little article early on in my stay here at the Institute called, it's in, in context, it was called The Trouble with Qualities. And I pointed out, among other things, sure, I, I know what green is, the color green. I can look at it and say, that's green, where I'm, I'm really saying, I'm really saying, <clears throat> this is the same as that. And saying this is the same as that doesn't yet characterize what either this or that is. It's a way of not characterizing what either of them is. And so I was, that was part of the point of my article. Now, I leave that whole thread and say a few things that you'll recognize very well about the character of our science. The dominant character is by no means the whole character. I'll probably come to this later. That you know, This is maybe a one-sided description, but it's clearly the dominant character of modern science. Beginning with the strong preference for a method of analysis. You want to know something? How do you find out about it? Take it apart. Find the parts of the whole. And you want to know, well, what's this part? Well, take that apart. And so it goes all the way down, all the way down to particles. And nowhere along that way with this method do we stop and say, behold this. Any more than I could stop and say, behold green, and tell you what I was beholding. I still can't to this day. Uh, 
even when you get all the way down, you don't say about the particles, behold this. The fact is, what you say is, this is the same as that. Physicists love to tell us that every electron is exactly the same and indistinguishable from every other electron. I think it's a, that's one of the greatest falsehoods ever to be uttered in the name of science. You'll have to ask me afterwards. But the point is, that's what you say. This is the same as that, and you don't get beyond that. And it'll become clearer why that's the case as, as we go along here. Method of analysis first. Mathematization of everything. Quantities are what counts. Now, when you mathematize something, you're always counting the same things. Always and only the same thing. And you'll say, well, we can count apples and oranges. Put them in a box and we can count all of them in there. But then you're counting things in the box or orange and red and green things or roughly globular things. However you're counting, you are counting according to a conception that makes everything exactly the same. Otherwise, they can't be counted. You say increment by one, increment by one, increment by one. You're adding. And what are you saying about each of those things when all you're saying is increment by one? They're all considered exactly the same. That's just you know, an elementary fact about our mathematization of things. Insofar as we're doing that counting or calculation, we're treating things as all the same. And actually, we come to the same thing when we look at the most fundamental laws of physics. The physicist wants laws that are as universal as possible, which means they apply to everything, which means everything is the same as far as those laws go. With respect to the law of gravity, a falling leaf is exactly the same as a falling stone. They both, they both relate to the law of gravity and exactly according to exactly the same truth. I'm, there's nothing wrong with our looking at things this way. I'm just saying, let's realize how we are looking and what it leaves out. In this case, we're leaving out all the reality of the things we're looking for. I'm, I'm just addressing an aspect of science which involves losing this reality. So, you know, there's the question how we counterbalance that. And that's, that's a very serious question about all of our science. I could also mention, as a third feature of science, the digitalization of things. Uh, Richard Dawkins said, digitalness is probably a necessary precondition for Darwinism itself to work. It's prob probably one of the rashest things he ever said. You'll have to ask me afterwards. 
the idea of digitalization is you've either got something or you don't. Basketball is the off, is often the um, an example. The ball goes through the hoop or it doesn't. You, you you score or you don't. You may score 100 points if you want to play the game that way for every basket. But the point is you either score or don't. In that sense, it's a zero or a one. You got it or you don't have it. You know, you can approach the basket and make your shot as ugly as sin. And if it goes through the hoop, it doesn't matter. Maybe I should have taken up basketball when I was young. <laughs> My rifle handling was digitally perfectly correct. You know, I didn't flub. I, I went through the hoop with, with every move. But the instructor saw it as laughable, and he saw it correctly. So when we digitize things, we're abstracting away from their concrete reality and certainly ignoring their expressive qualities. So the fourth item is really just the sum of all the others. Uh, and everybody knows this. I don't need to argue the point. Science from the very beginning has wanted to reject qualities. Starting with Galileo, this is celebrated often. The fact that we're rigorously quantitative and don't want to allow qualitative considerations into our science. A quick aside, you know, how, why, what we're missing when we say this is the same as that with qualities. Say you have a splotch of green paint on a piece of paper. You can move that to any different context, and actually that color is different. This is absolutely well known today. It's not controversial. The context has a, plays a great role in what a quality is. It's not, you can never say of two greens or even of the same green in a different context, this is the same as that. It's not. You know, Goethe had this strange saying that I don't understand, that colors are the deeds and sufferings of light. Yes. So, as I say, I don't understand it, but I like the thought that you know, if this splotch of green commits the deed of altering all the colors around it, it does that only by at the same time suffering the effects of all those colors upon itself. Now, I very much doubt that's what Goethe had in mind, but it's good enough for me. <laughs> everything we do, everything any human being does, is a gesture has gestural qualities. It's a kind of speech. And so even if one is trying to uh, avoid qualities, avoid the ensoulment of things, avoid meaning, one is still making a very meaningful gesture by doing that. 
And I want to characterize that gesture. I've written about it and and referred to it as the gesture of reductionism. You could call it the gesture of abstraction. But what shines through this whole tendency I'm referring to is gesture of a yearning for certainty, a a determination to avoid ambiguity in favor of precision, a desire to, to possess the truth and to do so in a form you can readily convey as so much information to the next person and write up as a convincing proof in the literature. That's the gesture, and and how would I illustrate that? Very simply, it's there, I've got it. That's what one wants to say under the influence of these tendencies I've been talking about. The problem is the more we try to grasp the truth of nature with mathematical precision and a method of analysis, the more it slips through one's fingers as if one was trying to grasp a handful of water. And this I'm going to spend a few moments uh, trying to show, so I'm not just saying this. You know, physicists often tell us that quantum physics is the most perfectly formulated body of theory we've ever had and is never in its core mathematics and core formulations has never been exceptioned. And they tend to get very irritated, however, with their own colleagues who take on the the project of trying to say something about what this body of theory actually means regarding the world we live in. So, you know, the the celebrated physicist Richard Feynman once famously said, nobody knows what energy is. Another physicist, Nick Herbert, wrote, as yet no physicist can tell you what sort of world we happen to live in. Sir Arthur Eddington, English 20th century physicist, wrote, our knowledge of physics is only an empty shell, a form of symbols. It is not knowledge of content. So it begins to look as if the science is supposed to give us our most fundamental understanding of the world we live in doesn't give us any fundamental understanding of the world we live in. And this is maybe bringing us to the crux of the matter. Another physicist, Robert March, has written, listen to this, it's a remarkable statement. We should never have expected words born in the familiar world readily accessible to our senses such as particle and wave, to perfectly describe the microcosm, 
The electron is what it is. And if the words we use to describe it seem full of paradox, so much the worse for those words. The equations have it penned down neatly. So in effect, the equations have it penned down neatly, but please don't ask me what it is they penned down. His book was entitled Physics for Poets, the kind of title physicists who write for the general public just love to use. And I guess the message to poets was, come on, why are you bothering so much about words? <laughs> and now, as since I'm flipping you back and forth rather wildly, go back to the 1700s. There was a man who was often considered just about the greatest literary figure in English history named Samuel Johnson. There's a famous anecdote about him in relation to the philosophy that had earlier been articulated by the philosopher Bishop Berkeley, the philosophy of idealism. So Johnson's famous biographer, Boswell, records this incident with Samuel Johnson. After we came out of the church, we stood talking for some time together of Bishop Barclay's ingenious sophistry to prove the non-existence of matter and that everything in the universe is merely ideal. I observed that though we have satisfied his doctrine is not true, it is impossible to refute it. I never shall forget the alacrity with which Johnson answered, striking his foot with mighty force against a huge stone till he rebounded from it, saying, I refute it thus. <laughs> that was... That was enough for Samuel Johnson. So I, I want to read a quote from Owen Barfield. He was a philologist and student of the evolution of consciousness, English, who's sort of been my lifelong mentor, deceased since I think about 1997. I never met him, but his books have been decisive for me. So I'm reading some of my own comments, and I'll get to Barfield. So what has happened to the solid sense-perceptible world? This is an amazing transition from Johnson kicking that stone to Robert March. So much the worse for the words, the equations have it pinned down neatly. What's happened to physics? Is there some inevitable logic playing out here based on the kind of methods that are being pursued. So what has happened to the solid sense perceptible world? The cocksure stubborn realism with which Samuel Johnson was able to give an argument clinching thump to a solid rock has now shrunk in some of our supposedly most fundamental science to an equally stubborn faith in dematerialized equations. 
After a hundred years of debate among physicists, we still lack any coherently describable, agreed-upon material reality to back these equations up. The lesson, I think, is that if we begin by refusing to say, behold this, we will end by having no this to behold. The more science aims at a mindless material world lacking all interior qualities, the more the world simply vanishes. In slightly different terms, would we try to have a world out there that has nothing to do with in here, we end up with nothing at all. And in slightly different terms yet again, when we embark on the long analytical descent toward ultimate particles, mathematizing everything and abstracting away from the concrete expressive reality of all that we encounter along the way, then it is no surprise that we are left with nothing capable of concretely expressing itself. So here's from Barfield. Since we do not consciously devise the world's qualities, it must be our unconscious which is responsible for those qualities which we classify as subjective, but which look so very much as if they actually belong to nature. Nevertheless, we are not allowed to speak of any mind or intelligence in nature because it is taboo. Might it not make things less complicated if we were now to infringe the taboo and concede that what we call unconscious or unselfconscious mind is in fact the inwardness of nature as well as of ourselves? But maybe it feels here like we're starting to make some great leaps. Things are a little, connections are a little muddy. And if you're feeling that, I'm kind of glad because it shows you've really been paying attention. That's true. Uh, there's a lot more to be said, and I hope the next step will help to bring some clarity to the situation. So anyway... This horse walks into a doctor's office and the doc says, hey, why the long face? (laughs) That wasn't the next step. Actually, it was to make sure you're still awake and give me a minute, a few moments to look through my notes and see if I've been giving the right talk here. Uh, two exercises or thought experiments or topics for meditation. This is to bring you into this whole line of thought I've been trying to develop, which must come across rather abstractly so far. But we're not going to actually do this. You're going to have to go home and do this. I'm going to have to speak for you as best I can. First exercise, situate yourself anywhere, anywhere. I think best of all, outdoors, a wonderful natural scene. Look around you and ask yourself, what is there 
apart from qualities, the qualities of things. What is available to you and connect to connect with the world other than through qualities? We know they're supposed to be merely subjective, but it's a very interesting thing. I think this is a conclusion you'll be led to. There's no world there without qualities. It's the simplest of statements. But maybe you can glimpse. This turns everything we have in our culture today, our habits of experience of the world, our science, everything inside out and upside down. It's an absolute revolution. All you need to do is ask yourself this question and you've got something to reflect on the rest of your life that I guarantee you will transform your whole being in relation to nature. To walk around and realize, you know, you can do it on these beautiful fall days. You see this incredible display and it's all quality. There's no big mystery about it. There's nothing missing. It's all qualities. None of us has a problem with that. We only know the world by means of that. So we have a very simple conclusion. If we have no world without qualities, then our knowing of the world must involve a knowing of qualities. Second exercise. That's sort of looking out at the world and asking yourself, what are you seeing? Uh, the other alternative is to turn inward and ask yourself, how, how do I receive the world? Through what portals, what channels do I receive any understanding of the world? And I think it's pretty safe to say you'll find that there's only two through your senses and perception and through the thinking by which you make sense of those perceptions. Your perceptions, we experience them upon the stage of our inner, of our consciousness. Our thinking, we experience upon the stage of our consciousness. Now, I could talk a lot about thinking and perception, and some of you have read epistemological things on this topic, but I'm not going there. I'm staying very basic, and I just want to say experience, uh, even better than consciousness. We experience the world within our experience. Not a terribly complex statement. Uh, and yet everybody, even those who philosophically may uh, have very different points of view, everybody in practice actually believes that they know the world, that, that the means by which they receive an understanding of the world gives them reality. And the thing I want to say here is that if that's the case, the, the simplest and most straightforward assumption 
is that this is what the world is, contents of experience. If there were anything, any part of the world that could not be a content of experience, we could never know the fact, quite obviously. If if we can't have an experience of it, it's absolutely unknowable. But as far as the world goes that we can know, the simplest assumption is that it is by essential nature material of experience. I wrote a couple lines here that I was supposed to read instead of saying what I just said. The simplest assumption is that nature essentially is experiential content. It consists of qualitative appearances or phenomena, literally appearing things, that make their appearance only within the interiority of living beings, that is, only within experience. This is their inherent nature. They arise within living experience and can only exist within living experience. A couple of reflections about those two exercises. I was partly thrown off early on by the feeling that I was looking for something mysterious, esoteric, hidden. Where do we find these qualities? You know, this inner, innerness of things, interiority of things. How do I get there? But the idea that there's these material exteriors, these shells within which there's hidden this esoteric interior is all wrong because as we've just seen, uh, there are no mindless exterior shells in any world we can know. It's all interior. But we do have to make a distinction between inner and outer. That's crucial. For one thing, we have to distinguish what belongs to us purely subjectively and is not part of the world. You know, the pink elephant I see or whatever. Uh, We have to distinguish that from the objective realm of the experiential presentation of the world that all of us can make part of our own interior experience. Well, that's a very crucial inner-outer distinction, but also we tend to view as outer that which comes through the senses because it just happens. We open our eyes and there it is and we don't have to do anything to produce that. Uh, whereas we do have to produce and we feel like we're owners of our own thinking, even if we don't know where it comes from, but, but we, we naturally feel that. So there's a kind of inner outer distinction there. But the point I want to make is that there is no inner outer distinction in the sense that some things are part of experience and some are not. Uh, The distinction between inner and outer is a distinction we make from within our experience. So we have to always realize 
that there's a sense in which even the outer is inner. The last comment here is to kind of sum it up. The qualitative interior expressive and insistent presence of a thing, its presence to experience, is the very substance of the thing. There's no other substance. It's not that we're trying to etherealize things into some sort of vague and shadowy inner experience, but rather that the qualities of experience can be as hard and adamantine as a diamond. There is no additional hardness of enduring particles lying behind the things of experience. Every physicist knows that those once imagined particles are not there. We have equations, but it is well understood that they do not refer to solid particles. The solidity we do have and really need is a solidity we encounter in experience, a solidity we can crack our skulls against. Now, if you look, I'm just going to mention this in passing, but one way to this is extremely difficult stuff to actually have your experience changed by. Owen Barfield makes this point time and time again. Our habits of experience of the world are deeply entrenched. And in fact, following Barfield and trying to get this relation between the interior here and the interior that is the world, uh, has taken me most of my life, and I still am always stumbling. The habit is, that belongs to this age has belonged here for hundreds of years is that I'm in here looking out there at mindless stuff. Those two little exercises I gave you are designed to change, to give you some thoughts that enable you to think that differently and then maybe progressively to actually experience it differently. But it's a terribly, terribly difficult work. The nice thing about those thoughts is they're pretty self-evident. They give you something to orient your, your work and, and your imagination as you're walking out in nature. But anyway, you can look at, look at history and Barfield's a great guide on this. And you'll, you see, when you go back just before the scientific revolution, you have this idea of the human being as a microcosm of the macrocosm. Everything I'm saying now was just obvious back then. We in here are kind of condensed reality of what's out there, a focal, a focal reality of what's out there. You also had the idea, not an idea really, but the experience that we live in a world of beings rather than things. And in that age, 
they would have had as hard a time understanding what I'm talking about when I talk about a method of analysis as we have trying to think back to how they saw the world. Barfield, I I have a quote from him that I could read, but it's kind of long. He, he, He tries to picture for us in one particular passage the way that medieval person experienced the world. Totally different from the way we experience it. There is an interesting quote from Coleridge. He's talking, it's his probably single most famous quote. He's talking about the primary imagination, which he takes to be the imagination with which we see things the way we see them the way our perception is shaped is by this primary imagination. He says, The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception, a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Some people take Coleridge to kind of be the, uh, the British Goethe. So I conclude a few minutes um, by trying to sort of go back to the beginning and maybe ask a question that may be there. How do I relate now? to the incapacities of myself I experienced earlier and the the questions that would come to grow out of those experiences. And I fully accept that I'm never going to be an artist, never going to be a pianist or musician, never a painter, never a sculptor, never a eurythmist or dancer or actor. Most regrettably, never a poet uh, would have greatly helped in my writing if I could have have some poetic capacity, but it's absolutely not there. None of those things is there, I guarantee you. Not one bit. But I, I'm a head person. My most natural approach to any situation is to... Tr- Think about it and try to understand it. My first instinct, it's obviously not the only thing you do. Somebody's just been hit by a car, but that's my, that's by my, natu- that's my natural instinct. Think about a situation and try to understand it. Now, in a community that's as richly blessed with artists as this community is, that can be a little problematic but I'm totally unapologetic now. That's where I've come to. Uh, I rather enjoy being who I am. (laughs) It is true. A head without a heart can be extremely destructive. So too can a heart without a head. But the solution to both of those problems may be the realization 
of the natural wholeness of the human being. All efforts of growth tend to lead toward a greater and greater wholeness and integration of the human being. I think it's impossible to pursue one part of our being in a healthy way, such as the head part, without leakage going on and affecting, uh, catching up the other parts in, in a way that tends toward a greater wholeness. And of course, life has a way of throwing things at you that move you toward balance that are quite outside the whole realm of this head conversation. That's maybe our salvation. But I'm just talking about the kind of person I am, and some of you are, and if you follow your head healthily, say you realize you've seen just vividly in all your work this gesture, there, I've got it. And it's become intensely meaningful to you to see the pathology of that gesture as a one-sided gesture. What can you do? You need, you realize, for your own understanding, you need to relax that grasp. Now, maybe that's partly a, a heart gesture. It's certainly also a will gesture. But that's what you're led to. And that's intimately connected to the fact that if you're really working toward understanding, you're always working around the boundaries of, of knowledge. You're always at this edge. You know, you have this little pitifully small area where you can say, I understand, and there's just huge mystery all around it. But that little boundary around this, what you take to be your understanding, is also the boundary around everything else. Henrika can help you understand that. <laughs> and that, that's where you work. You're always realizing something's not fully there in these things I understand. They're always right up against this boundary and they can point you into that, across that boundary a little bit, where you make some little inroads, and the stuff that you realize is a complete mystery to you there helps to moderate your arrogance about the things you think or thought you knew really well. So... A healthy head, I think, is, is involved in that whole very dynamic process. It involves a kind of openness to the other, where all the unknown is the other. And how do you become open to the other? I don't, I don't know. I've never really thought about it or studied about it. But in writing this up, I realized 
Yeah, that's the way it works. We all recognize qualities all the time, and that's part of the answer for me to realize this. A scientist cannot identify a part while analyzing things uh, as a significant whole, a significant part, without saying, behold this. Behold this part. He doesn't look at a little branch, of a section of a branch of a tree and the blue sky behind it, a little section of a puffy white cloud, and say, that's a part. No, he has a very healthy awareness of the wholeness of a tree, how it's got its roots, its trunk, its branches, it grows upward, reaches toward the sun and all this. It's there, even if it's not really being brought into the, 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 the scientific theorizing. So this recognition is always going on. We all have it all the time. I don't need to think, oh, what am I missing in the sense of something esoteric that I haven't developed the faculties for yet. All I need to do is try to keep paying a little more attention to what's all around me. There's this angst today about materialism and do we humans have a home in the universe? The answer is so simple. Everything I've said tells us this universe is nothing but our home. Our Everything we encounter is akin to our own interior, can be known within, known as expressive, meaningful content. It does die when we say, behold this, and immediately let's take it apart and see what it is, instead of trying to read those expressions for what they are, read the world around us for what it is. Maybe this moral will make sense to you. For me, it's the moral, one of the morals underlying this talk. But perhaps the things you and I can't do and know we can't do and can accept that we can't do are among the greatest gifts we are given. You've been a wonderful audience and very sympathetic audience. Give you my heartfelt thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us, info at natureinstitute.org, with your comments and suggestions. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes in our podcast series, or just learn more about our work, you'll find us at natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.